from today's text, which is Mark 11, 27 through 12, 17. So please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And from Mark 12, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and they were amazed at him. This is God's word. Good morning. I have this rather um, daunting task of teaching uh, on authority and the authority of God today. So uh, I'm gonna pray. I'm mainly just gonna pray for myself, that's cool. Um, no, let's pray. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would somehow 
get through the words of uh, a human vessel um, that desires to be submitted to you, um, and then speak uh, your, your powerful, loving authority uh, to probably a world and a culture that this, 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 like, it feels like it maybe speak a different language. And I understand that, and I feel that sometimes. And so I ask that you would break into this world like you often do. You can, you can break into other worlds, and you do all the time. Um, worlds that, of our own creation, our own making, or different cultural worlds. And you break into them, and you bring light and heat. And I pray that you did it this morning. For your sake and your gospel's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the book of Mark is written in a way that um, Jesus is... Uh, revealed and then he's hidden he's revealed in certain parts but hidden in other parts um this is why um uh there's themes of uh, sight and blindness a lot in in mark's uh, gospel there's there's people who are blind and given sight and people right after sight was given um jesus calls them blind or they or after someone that was deaf and couldn't hear is healed the the the, the disciples don't understand and so there's this this play on like perception and hearing and sight and blindness, um, and the whole gospel starts like this. And this is like the, the, the irony and the, and the dramatic tension in the entire book. It starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So like the very first line of the, of the book, if you read this, you, you and I are told who Jesus is. But no one in the book knows who Jesus is. And that's the, that's the tension, right? You and I know, we know, it's just the very first sentence. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the Son of God. And the thing is, no one in the story knows that yet. And as soon as they think they know, Jesus tells them to sh- not talk. You ever notice that in Mark? Like, like we know, we are the Son of God. He's like, shh, not yet, not yet, not yet. Don't, don't. And you would think, well, I thought they're supposed to tell everybody. Well, actually, not yet, because they don't really see clearly yet. And so this sentence is the one thing that brings the tension in the book. The irony of the book uh, is that you and I know who Jesus is, but they don't. And the suspense actually comes from the, our knowledge as readers and the ignorance of the actors in, in the book. We know from the beginning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the gospel concerns him, but strangely, no one else really knows. Um, the demons know, and Jesus tells them to be quiet, um, but no one else really knows. But as Mark's story quickly progresses, everyone starts to gather that Jesus actually, though they don't know who he is, he's no ordinary rabbi. He's doing things that no ordinary rabbis really do. Um, the only way that they can ex- describe what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is is that he has, um, the Greek word is exousia. He has power. He has authority. And so in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and a demonic man starts to scream out, Jesus tells the demon to leave the man, and the demon does, and people marvel. They just trip out, and they are all amazed, and they say among themselves, what is this? What is this? A new teaching, and with exousia, and with authority. He teaches, but he doesn't just get up and exposit things from Isaiah. He doesn't just get up and tell us like what the Torah says. He, he, he teaches, and then he does things to exercise this power and this authority everywhere. And as the story progresses, the authority... And the power of Jesus start to press into places that are only reserved for God. So in chapter 3, he binds the the strong man, Satan. He binds Satan. In uh, chapter 2, he forgives sins. That's, what are you you talking about? You can't forgive sins. 
Like that's done in the temple by God. You can't do that outside the temple and you do it. What are you doing? Well, you can't do that. He has, he, he displays like this supremacy over the, the Sabbath, like he actually is the Sabbath. And this topic of authority is actually really important and relevant because people, what I found, and I mean, and if you don't feel this way, I would really love to chat with you, but I found most, almost every single time people don't have a problem with Jesus's teachings per se. They think he was a good teacher, like things he said about love and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and pray for your enemies, like all that stuff people are pretty cool with. People don't typically have a problem with Jesus' miracles or his good works, the, f- the fact that he goes around and he heals people or, and, or he feeds people, all of this stuff, like people don't really have a problem with that. People don't typically have a problem with Jesus' example of love or forgiveness or even sacrifice. Where people start to have pro- a problem, where I, I start to have a problem, where you start to have a problem, is when it comes to Jesus' authority. That's where we have a problem. I mean, as long as the things Jesus teaches and does have no real bearing on me and what I want in the world or conflicts with any of my own intuitions or my own freedom, then we're good. We're good. We're totally good. But if you're saying that Jesus' authority presses in on my life and demands something from me, then we might, we might, have, we might have a bit of a problem. Now, I bring all this up because this sort of problem and question surrounding Jesus' authority is what comes up here in Mark chapter 11 and 12. That a fairly long text of scripture, but Lindsay read it so well that it didn't feel like long at all. But it's a fairly long text of scripture. In this, in this text, the Sanhedrin, which is the, the seat of Jewish religious and political power made up of 71 leaders, came to Jesus to question his authority. They say this, Mark eleven twenty eight. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Now, these things and doing this Um, is everything that Jesus has been doing up to this point, like all the healings and all the miracles and all the teachings, and especially last week, if you were here, the incident with the temple and the tables, where Jesus is flipping over the tables and he stopped the sacrifices for that day. What authority do you have to do this? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Where do you get the right to press in on our space, our temple, our lives, uh, challenge our authority, our rule, our power? Where do you, where do you, where do you, where do you get this authority? What, who gave you authority? Who, why do you even think you have authority? And I think that's the real question of this whole section that we're looking at today. Now, in order to answer this question, one commentator says that Jesus doesn't defend himself. He actually reveals himself. He doesn't defend. He doesn't go, oh, this is why. He actually reveals who he is. And this is rather important because Jesus doesn't do that up to this point. He's, he's kind of hidden in plain sight. He's kind of hidden. He doesn't really, other than his close disciples, he doesn't give out what he's doing and what he's there to do, but here he does. He reveals himself. Remember the tension. We all know who he is, but no one else does. And here in Jerusalem, in the last week of his life, he reveals who he really is. And he does this in a story, in a parable. Jesus loves to teach in parables. Parables are really effective ways. Storytelling is a very effective way of teaching. And he, he he does this through what is called the, the parable of the tenants. Now, the basic premise of the parable is a, a farmer owns a vineyard. And that's not hard for us to imagine living so close to Napa. Imagine owning a big vineyard. And he planted and he leased this property out to tenant farmers or stewards. So he, he, he has a vineyard and he, he put a wine press in the vineyard. I mean, they're making wine there. This is a good operating vineyard. Beautiful fruit, all of this stuff. And then he hires someone 
to come and live on the property and keep the fruit and make the wine. Now, the tenant's responsibility was to cultivate the vine and take care of and manage the vineyard so that the good fruit should be brought forth from the land and their responsibility as a steward and as a tenant was to take care of the land. And at harvest season, the owner sends one of his own servants to collect his produce or to collect the, the fruit of the vine, whether this is the fruit or wine or whatever, what's rightfully the landowner's because the owner owns the land. Now, the bigger story here is, and because it's a parable, and parables always have like all kinds of layers and bigger pictures in mind, the bigger story here is Israel. In the Old Testament, there was a fairly dominant biblical allusion, a metaphor of Israel as a vineyard. And the most prominent one is found in Isaiah. And Isaiah here, um, it's kind of a, it's a song. It's a little bit taunting, but this is the song. Here, here, here's a prophecy, here's, but it's done in song. It says, I will sing one for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. And he sings a song. And um, he says, my, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. And he dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it and he cut out a wine press as well. And he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it only yielded bad fruit. This, is, this, was, this was the idea. The, this audience, the Sanhedrin, was very familiar with this metaphor, Israel as a, as a vineyard. Now, it doesn't map entirely, and we'll get to that ex- because Jesus talks here about a fruitful vineyard, and that one's not a fruitful vineyard. And he's talking about the, the people overseeing the vineyard, not the vineyard itself. So there is some parallels, but not, it doesn't completely map. Jesus goes on with this parable. He says this. At harvest time, the landowner sends a messenger, a servant, to receive the good fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed as if to say, go tell your master he's not getting what he wants. Now the landowner then sent another messenger. And they beat this one even more severely and sent him back with the same message. And the landowner sent another servant. I would hate to be in line. To go to the ne- I just, that would be really horrible. But this one never came back. They killed this one. And if it was a movie, what they probably did was hung his body up outside so all the other servants that would come see it, or they would send his head back or something. I mean, if it was a movie, imagine. This is what would happen, right? But then the landover, landowner was persistent. He sent another to his vineyard, and they beat them badly, and some they killed. He kept on sending people, and some they beat, and some they killed, and some they beat, and some they killed. And the only thing the vineyard owner has reaped from his beloved vineyard has been insults and mockery and death. But the landowner has one last resort, one more servant he's going to send, his own son. He sends his own son. Now, here's the question. Why send your son? If they've beat and killed everyone else, I have a son. I wouldn't have sent my son. That's the last thing I would do. If they beat and killed everyone else, why expose yourself? Because really the landowner is exposing himself because it's his son. And make yourself vulnerable by sending your own son. Not only your son is vulnerable, but that's part of you. That's your your flesh flesh and bone. Like You're making yourself vulnerable. You would think this landowner would send an assassin. That's what, I mean, if that was a movie, that's what would happen. It's like you hire an assassin, a very good one, or an army, or people with weapons. And if we're watching this as a movie, you totally would, you would be angry right now. This would be like the Count of Monte Cristo where you want justice, right? And you're like, just kill him, just kill everyone, just do it, just do it now, just kill him, kill him, that sort of thing. You would want that, you would want to see this happen because you just want justice to happen. And you can imagine the Sanhedrin leaning in like, oh my gosh, this person's going to get it. 
Like, why doesn't this landowner do something? This is what they're thinking. This is, this is like a, a parable that's told to make you like lean in a bit until you realize that that, that whole parable is about you. And the word send here in this parable, when Jesus uses the word send, carries this idea of like compassion. I'm gonna send my son. It's like divine compassion. That's the idea. One commentator called this uh, the blessed idiocy of grace. Like why would, he, why would he send his son? It's almost foolish how much patience and grace God has to receive what belongs to him. Another layer of this parable is God's constant pursuit No matter how many times God is rejected, he keeps sending messengers and servants. After all the violence and rejection, he sends his son. This is captured in that song, um, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's like that, that thing. God keeps sending over and over and over and over again. When he's rejected, he keeps sending. Out of mercy, he keeps sending to get what's his, to get back what's his. He keeps sending and sending. Now, the parable gets worse. When the landowner sent his servants, he was appealing to the, the tenant's integrity, like, pay what you owe, please. I mean, this is the agreement you and I have made. He's appealing to integrity, pay what you owe. But when the landowner sent his son, he was appealing to the law. See, the son was the only one who had legal claim over the vineyard. This is my vineyard. So he's going to take what's his. It's, he's appealing to the law. When it says that they will, when the landowner thinks, well, they'll respect my son. Um, respect refers to like people humbling themselves. Like they'll see my son and then they'll humble themselves when they see my son. But they don't. They don't humble themselves. What they do see is that the son has legal rights to the vineyard and so they say, let's kill him. And if we kill him, what's his will be ours. What Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin here is actually pretty shocking and they fully understand what he means. Jesus is saying, you work for me. I own the vineyard. I own the temple. Why, what authority am I doing these things? Oh, I own this place, that's why. I own everything you see. I have ultimate authority over you. I have legal right, and you don't have legal right. And then Jesus says, because of this truth, he literally says this, because of this truth, and because I'm sent from the Father, you are going to kill me. And what do they do? They're like, I can't believe you said this. Because you said this, we're going to kill you. <laughs> That's literally what happens. Like, and you're going to kill the messenger. And they're like, we're going to kill you. <laughs> the vineyard in this parable is not a human possession. It's not even Israel's possession. Ultimately, it's God's possession. And here's what this means. You don't belong to you. You don't belong to your job. You don't belong to your spouse or your past or even your family. Not ultimately, not, not metaphysically, not, not, not in any way that's like um, transcendent. You don't belong to those things. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms through a subversive story that you belong to God. Yes. You belong to God. You're his possession, his special possession, it says in First Peter. And not just you, but everything belongs to God. Meaning your job, does the things you think you own, you don't own. Your job doesn't belong to you. Your money doesn't belong to you. Your time doesn't belong to you. Your talents don't belong to you. All of these things belong to God. In other words, you are a steward. That's, that's what you are. You are like 
the, the tenant farmers who are taking what God has given you, all the talents you have, all the knowledge you have, where you live, what you, all the stuff is given to you, and now you are to be a steward of it, to, to care for it towards the flourishing of the kingdom of God. That's the idea. But we have this proclivity. We have this habit of hijacking what belongs to God. We think personally and culturally, we think this culture, this is like the, we'll get to the move of, of culture in a second, but we think this very personally and this is, this is the movement of culture. If I can get rid of God's authority over my money, over my sexuality, over my job, over my life, then I can be my own authority. I just get rid of God and I can be my own authority. And this is the sum total of human history done in different ways at different times. Humanity attempting to rid the universe of God. And we think we can seize control of everything in our lives and push God out of the picture. We just, I mean, these, do these tenants really believe that by killing the son they would become owners of the vineyard? That seems insane, right? You're like, what? No, that's not how that works. But apparently they did, they did think that. Do we really think that by erasing God from our lives or our culture that we can take control of our own fate? That you can have what you really want? I mean, apparently, this is literally the, 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 the cultural water that we swim in. We apparently, we think we do. Like, if we could get rid of God, we could do what we want. We, we apparently think that's the case. See, being a steward means having an authority, and having an authority is a threat to our freedom and our autonomy. This is the problem. This is why we don't want an authority. I don't want anything to threaten my freedom. I don't want anything to threaten my autonomy. I mean, we love freedom. It's the ultimate, freedom is the ultimate human value, modern human value. We love freedom so much that freedom actually enslaves us. Um, if, you, if you want to see the workings of this worked out in a three-season package, watch, or four-season succession, just watch that. This is like that, right? If you, if you watch that, if you've seen that. And this is all lived out. I mean, all the anger of the vineyard owners and like, this is mine and I'm going to kill and whatever it takes, whatever it takes, this is, this is played out. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's, it's so captivating because it's, it's, it's a show that's like distant from me. But it's, this is all of us. We, we love freedom so much that it enslaves us. It enslaves us to violence because if, if we get freedom through violence, we'll do violence, if we get freedom through greed, we'll do greed. If we get freedom through pride, we'll do pride. If we get freedom through coveting, we'll covet. The enslavement of, to freedom makes us think our desires should be fulfilled at all costs. We might exploit another person to get what we want. We might treat them horribly. We might even reject Jesus. If it gets us what we really want, we will do it. I might lose a marriage in the process or a family or a relationship, or a friend, or belief and faith in God. But if I get what I want, I don't care. Now, that's a very crass way of looking at it. I know there's a lot more empathy and compassion involved in, in those steps, but ultimately, if you stepped out and zoomed out, and we were looking at this like X's and O's, this is exactly what it would be. Or zeros and ones, maybe that makes more sense. Anyway, what, that, it, that's what it would be. That's, that's literally, you've traded this for this. You love this so much that you sacrifice this. We want our own lives so bad, our own dreams so bad, our own fulfillment and happiness so bad that we'll do anything to get it and anything to keep it. If it means losing our family, our faith, our old community. And so Jesus ends with uh, the parable with a quote from Psalm 118. And this is, this is the way, his quote from Psalm 118. Um, it says in verse 10, the stone the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous. And is it marvelous in our eyes? Now, the cornerstone is the most important stone in the structure, in a structure built even, I mean, really even today. It's, a, it's the foundation stone. It's the stone that the rest of the foundation is built upon and measured up to. It's the cornerstone. It's everything is measured up to the squareness of this stone. And the idea here is what did the Sanhedrin build their life on? What was their foundation? What was their cornerstone? See, when Jesus asked them about John the Baptist, I think, what authority? He's like, well, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist, what authority, where did he get his authority? From God or from man? Is he from God or from men? What is it? What is it? What? They, they said, well, I don't know. They lied, though, because they didn't want to answer because they feared the crowds, which is interesting because the, the point here is that the Sanhedrin had built their life on the opinion of men. The cornerstone was the praise and acceptance of people. That was the corner. They built their life on that. So, so everything that was a threat to that became a threat to them. Anything that became a threat to their power or their influence over people or their, or their praise of, or they're, they're getting praise from people, accolades from people, whatever threatened that threatened them. See, whatever we build our lives upon, if someone threatens that, it threatens us. It shakes, that's kind of how you know the foundation of your life. If, it, if that thing is threatened, it threatens everything that you believe. It, th- it shakes your entire life. If your whole pursuit in life is acceptance, when anything comes in and shakes that up, then your whole life gets threatened. If your pursuit in life is authenticity of being yourself, if anything threatens your authenticity, it threatens not just, it threatens you to your core. Even if Jesus threatens that, it threatens you. Now, you might be asking, what is, then what is Jesus offering here? What's the alternative? And this is where I, I need to, for a second here, acknowledge that we do not live in a world that this parable, for the most part, doesn't hit like it hit in the first century. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, Philip, Philip Reif, an American sociologist, um, broke up the like, kind of world history. Uh, Charles Taylor did this, and we talked about this during our transcendental teaching. Um, the, transcendent, the, trans, the transcendent frame and the eminent frame, if you remember that. So Reif does it somewhat similarly. He breaks the world up in three worlds, three movements. First world, second world, third world has nothing to do with geography or economy. It's just the first world was about the world was myth. And you did something because you believe the gods told you to do it. Now, um, this is Greek mythology. This is even some mythology in the Old Testament. Um, this, like, this is the belief in God, and God told us to do it, and God is the authority. That was the first world. And everyone lived in the first world at, at that time. Everyone believed that, the world, that you could not control your universe, and everything was controlled by the gods, so therefore you had to sacrifice to the gods. You had to believe in the gods, okay? Now, we did this in transcendental teaching, so go back there. The second world was uh, the world of faith. And so, sacred text, sacred order, religion. And so, this is the world of Christianity. This is the world of anytime you ask a question, you can appeal to a sacred text, like the Bible, or sacred order, like church history. So, there was a sacred text, and you would interpret this text, and this, this text would become an authority to you. And basically, our Western world was built on this second world. We have what we have, and we are what we are because of the second world of Christianity, of Christianity specifically, and um, 
and its faith structure. Okay. Now, those two worlds were really about a transcendent order. Again, the transcendental teaching. Something outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, where you believed that you owed God something. You believed in God and you owed God something. Now, some of us, there's mainly we live in a third world, but there is some overlap, especially if you grew up in church. There's a bit of overlap there. So if I, if I appeal to the you owe God, it would, it would kind of make sense to you. But to someone grown up outside of church in what we now call the third world, um, that makes actually no sense. Here's why. The third world, uh, which is what we live in today, which is one of the reasons why it's really hard to communicate the Bible uh, in, in our culture, in the city in our culture, because we live in a third world. Uh, the third world is shaped not by faith or the sacred order, but one shaped by um, an eminent frame, as Charles Taylor called it. I mean, everything is like um, trapped inside of ourselves. We, uh, the, the reference point, like universe, it's us. The reference point's us. It's not cosmic. It's not beyond us. It's not transcendent. It's not sacred order. It's not sacred text. It's just us. It's defined by um, authenticity as our authority. So our true authority is authenticity. Am I true to myself? That's the ultimate authority. And that makes sense to you. That makes so much sense to you that when I say you have to be true to yourself, everyone, without almost everyone in culture, agrees with that statement without any uh, philosophical uh, underpinnings. Meaning you can't give a philosophical argument why that's true. Why is that true? I'm like, I don't know, because it's true. Like if you went to your neighbor, like, man, I just gotta be true to me, they'd be like, yeah, <laughs> totally. If you're like, no, I, got, I have to be faithful to God. He's telling me to do this thing. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because God. They'd be like, what? That makes no sense. Because we live in a third world. We live where authenticity is authority. Intuition guides our morality. Meaning what feels right in the moment will guide our morality. This is why we have um, uh, situational ethics. What was the situation? How do we know? What's going on? You have to intuit it, feel it out, get in the room. Like, well, what does it feel like? Is it wrong to, to, to divorce your spouse? Well, you just got to feel it out. I don't know. It might be good for you. Why? It's intuition. That's morality. And the last way that this is defined is that we actually have the power to shape reality now. Where in, before, like, when you lived outside in, like, like mud houses or or tents or whatever, and you heard lightning and thunder, you were like, we're going to die. If you've been trapped outside in a, in a horrible rainstorm and thunderstorm without any protection, you're like, oh God, please help. I have no power to help, to help myself. But if you live like sheltered and you hear thunderstorms, you can like look out the window and go, this is beautiful. <laughs> I, have, I have no fear right now. This is, this is the world, right? Diseases... Um, travel, we've, we've mastered our world. And because we mastered our world, uh, we're not that afraid of it anymore. Not just that, we actually shape our own reality. Have you ever heard that podcast, um, uh, um, Stuff You Should Know? Stuff You Should Know is such a good podcast. And they just did a, a, a podcast on what is reality. And it wasn't about our church. It was about <laughs> reality. It was like ultimate reality. And their conclusion was, there is no ultimate reality beyond what, the humans, what a human knows. Reality is only reality because we perceive it. 
So if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Not if we can't hear it. Because it's not real unless we, and the reference point, it was a very fascinating episode, but the conclusion was the reference point is me, us. The reality is only real to us, so if we see it, and this is why virtual reality is reality, because if we see it and we perceive it, it's reality. It's virtual, but it's reality. Why? Because you can see it. The reference point is us, and so this is the third world. This is water. So in the first and second world, I don't know why I'm getting this technical towards the end of the sermon, but here I go. (laughs) In the first and second world, if I said, you owe it to God, this is God's vineyard, you belong to God, you owe it to God, it would totally make sense to you. You would go, absolutely. How do I get right with that God? If I say it now, some of you might get it, but a lot of people, especially even outside of this room, would not get it. You owe it to God. Oh, what to God? Oh, the suffering and the pain to God? On oh, all the brokenness of this world? This is what, that's where we'd go, right? We just blame all the bad stuff on God. But if I said, you owe it to yourself, you'd be like, yes. <laughs> you owe it to yourself to do this. Why? Because that's the third world. You are the authority. That's you right now. It makes total sense to you. It wouldn't have made sense in the other worlds. If Jesus would have said, you owe it to yourself, they would be like, what? That, I don't even have a framework for that. What does that even mean? Oh, it's myself. But we understand it. Now, what do you say when you're up against these worlds? When I'm trying to communicate the authority of God to this world, what can you say? Well, first of all, you could just name it, like I tried to do. You, 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 you belong to God. Everything you have is from God. I could just name it like I tried to there. Naming it helps. It does help. You hear it. You're, it's named. You know what to do with that. But also, I can I try to come out this way, and this is where I'll start to end. In the, in the first and second world, and I would say the first century here, um, there's this underpinning of fear. You tap into fear. So at the end, like, the landowner will come and take what's his and kill you. And that's, the, that's a, again, this is all parable. But what, is, what's, what does that mean? Judgment. And so you fear judgment. And fear, like, fear is what operated in the, in the first and second world. Fear of the gods, fear of God, fear of, of sacred order, fear, fear of being cast out of sacred order, excommunicated from sacred order. But today, that, I don't know, that, that, that doesn't hit the same. But what we do live with today is not fear, but anxiety. Anxiety. And the anxiety that we live with is... Um, an anxiety of inauthenticity. Like, I, I'm so afraid of not being myself. Some of you are even struggling. That, how do I become a Christian and still be me? How do, I, how do I choose my apartment and it say something about me? How do I choose an outfit and it be me and, uh, and a vacation that's really me? Because if I go there, that's not me, but this is me. How do I, and we wrestle with this anxiety all the time. How do I post something that really feels like me? How do I have a job that feels like me? This is, this is the struggle. This is the anxiety that we all live with. And what, what sociologists and philosophers will say is that there cannot be an authentic you without affirmation of the legitimacy of you from others. So you can't actually be you until you could bounce the you off of someone else and they say, that is you. And you're like, that's me, huh? That's you. That's how, we, that's how we know. You can't be yourself outside a group of other people affirming who you are. Which is why, by the way, which is why um, for some people it might be really hard for you to understand um, the movement of like 
um, sexuality moving into the area of aff affirming and moving into the area of, of, of like acknowledging. And the reason why is because in the third world, unless you're acknowledged and seen as what you are, you are not who you are. So you, you have to get acknowledgement from everyone. And if you don't, you become the new Puritans. If you ever listen to, I'm just going, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> things are I told someone that I didn't really write the last half of my sermon, so I'm just going to go for it. Um, if you listen to the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, anyone? Uh, that's basically what's going on. If, like, if we don't get affirmed the way we want to affirm, we become the new uh, Puritans that are hunting witches down. That's basically the point of the podcast, right? Um, that's what happens, and that is, what ha that is where it's going. That's where, we're, that's where freedom of speech is going. That's where it, it's all going right now because um, we live in a third world. Okay, so if identity and who I am can only be like authenticity, can only be like found in like you telling me that I'm that thing, and I live in a culture where I'm affirmed, if that is true, and not what we're looking for, all of us, is we're looking for a voice. We're all looking for a voice. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a, for a voice that tells us that we are who we are. That's what we're really honestly looking for. Our text today ends with an attempt to trap Jesus by asking if he thinks Jews should pay taxes to Caesar or not. It was a trap. If he said yes, then the insurrectionists who were trying to overthrow um, uh, the Caesars and Rome because they were occupying the temple and occupying um, uh, Jerusalem, they would have gave them fuel. And if he said no, then the Romans would kill Jesus. And so he's trapped. But Jesus knows it's a trap, and Jesus is amazing. Literally, as it says that, they were amazed by him. And so he asked for a, a coin, a Daenerys. He asked for, he doesn't have one, notice, he doesn't have one. He goes, someone give me a coin? Someone gives him a coin, he holds it and goes, whose image is that? And everybody's like, ooh, this is fun. I'm, I want to answer. Caesar, that's Caesar. That's totally Caesar. And it was right. The, the coin had Caesar's image on it. And then whose inscription? Um, the inscription was that Caesar is Lord. That was the inscription. Whose name and whose, whose face and whose inscription? It was Caesar's face and the inscription was Caesar is Lord. Okay. And he says, well, then that's Caesar's. Give it to Caesar. And then what's God's? Give it to God. Now, you, you see the implication, right? The idea is that this coin was stamped with the image and the inscription, the words, the words of Caesar. And likewise, you, you and I, are stamped with the image of God and inscribed with the, with the, with the words of God over us. Beloved, you, you are. And what, what we try to do is we... We get out of the authority of God, and again, in this third world, we think, oh, I'm out of authority, I can do what I want. But what we actually are doing is we're getting out of the authority of God and the voice of God over us for who we really are. And this voice, who we really are, is what we, what we are really looking, what everyone's looking for. So what you're looking for is what I'm looking for. St. Augustine, I used this quote, I shared this quote a few weeks ago, but I want you to notice something different from this quote, um, where he says uh, in his confessions, late have I loved you, a beauty so ancient and so new, late have I loved you, 
He says, you are within, but I outside seeking there for you, and upon the shapely things you have made, I rush headlong misshapen. I can, we can just do this, this, this passage like every single week. It's so good. But one thing I want to draw out right here is that what's clear, um, Augustine went after the things of like the, just all the pleasures of the world to satisfy his like all the cravings that he had. And what he, he says here, after he's coming to faith, he's saying here that when he went after those things, he was really going after God. Did you notice that? You were with him, but I outside seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong misshapen. I was trying to fit my life into the, like all the pattern of the world, but what I was really looking for was you, God. And I was out there, but you were in here calling inside of me the voice of who I am. So, your and my attempt to either gain authority in this world or find out who we are in this world, to be named and want to be named who we are in this world, what my point is, what that ultimately is, is uh, you looking for God. You might not know that right now. You might not think that. You might not even agree with me on that. And you might not know that until hindsight, until you become a follower of Jesus, and then look back, you're like, oh, what I was really looking for the whole time was God. And that is what you're looking for. And so a better language would be um, what Jesus is asking and, and inviting us into and calling us into is coming home to God. So I said that Jesus at the very beginning, that Jesus actually here who reveals himself, he reveals himself as the seeking and saving God, the God that's drawing us home, that's giving us a name, that's bringing us home to who we really are, our, like the image that we, that, we, that we bear inside, the real image and the real inscription over us. Would you stand with me as we pray?